Are you looking to expand your brand this year? Want to make your business stand out above the rest? Well, there's no better way to grow than with your own podcast. Whether you're an entrepreneur, a solopreneur, a small business, or a massive company, you need a podcast in 2024. Podcast Plus is an easy and efficient way for you and your brand to join the podcast revolution. There's no better way to position your company as the go-to authority than with a podcast that showcases your industry knowledge, insights, and expertise. The studios at Podcast Plus are state-of-the-art with top-of-the-line production quality. And if you're just starting out, Podcast Plus offers professional script writing, editing magic, and can conceptualize your show, create your cover art, and get you ready to stream on all major platforms. We'll market your podcast as well, showcasing it on radio stations and digital streams across the country. Expand, enhance, and extend your company and brand and reach potential clients and customers 24-7. Find out more at podcast with the K, P-L-U-S.com. That's podcast with the K, P-L-U-S.com. Five, four, three, two, one. We interrupt our program to bring you this important message. A confirmed attack is taking place against the United States. Aliens from an unknown location have been reported in multiple states. We are controlling transmission. There is another world that awaits, far beyond what we can see and feel. A place that's anything but ordinary. What you believe might not be. Step into the zone of the best unknown. UFOs, aliens, ghosts, Bigfoot, conspiracies and cover-ups. And to the paranormal we go. Yeah, nearly every day all over the world is something that witnesses see. We're talking about unidentified objects in the sky. What are these things? Uh, uh, maybe there's a chance that some are extraterrestrial craft. Maybe there's a possibility that they are our own and they have been reverse engineered. Uh, maybe there's a possibility that it is uh, something that we just don't understand. But nonetheless, there are witnesses who report their encounters every single day to the tune of more than 170,000, in fact, over the past 50 years, according to the National UFO Reporting Center. That's about 3,400 per year, about nine per day. And that is just the U.S. It's also only those that have been reported. Many more go unreported. For those who have uh, seen these, whatever they are, whether it's lights in the sky, some sort of anomaly, whether it's craft, or whether it's even uh, a close encounter, they will sometimes say that it appeared to defy the law's of physics. Now, the most obvious one being the propulsion method. I mean, how is this thing operating? It probably doesn't land on the airport tarmac and get jet fuel. It has to have a way to get from point A to point B. Also, many times these objects are way higher than even commercial and military 
aircraft. And we've heard the wild stories where they're able to descend and ascend many tens of thousands of feet in the blink of an eye, which is impossible with the aircraft that we have in the skies these days. And the maneuverability as well. I mean, this is stuff that has shocked pilots who have seen these objects, knowing that's not possible. And yet countless times pilots have reported that they have been outmanned in the skies. They are able to stop these objects and uh, either, like I said, ascend or descend and even turn on a dime. Uh, Perhaps you've seen the Tic Tac and the Go Fast and the Gimbal videos. That certainly is a good place to start for uh, to give you an idea of, of what kind of maneuvers we're talking about. But let me ask you this. What can travel not only through the atmosphere, but also water at high speeds? What is behind this technology? Now, this has come up recently in Congress. In fact, in last summer's hearing, when the pilots under oath who testified described many of these characteristics. Congressman Tim Burchett, who has been a key player in the current disclosure proceedings, he's part of the House Oversight Committee, which has been overseeing the UFO hearings. He stated that he believes, without question, These objects in the skies are not of this earth and have the abilities to fly underwater and never leave behind heat trails. Goes back to the propulsion. You're going to be able to uh, see a heat trail. But in in these cases, there is no heat trail. There was also a research paper from former director of the Pentagon's All-Domain Anomaly Resolution Office, Dr. Sean Kirkpatrick, along with Harvard University professor Avi Loeb, that argues there are UAP that seem to defy physics as they lack certain telltale signs, such as an ionized tail or optical fireball produced by friction. And they could possibly be probes from apparent craft of extraterrestrial origin. Yet Kirkpatrick said in the hearings that he testified at that there is no evidence that these craft defy the laws of physics. When I thought about all this, I came upon Geo Turner, who has written the book, UFO Science, Secret New Physics Vehicles and UAP. He started out as a graphic designer, which led him into television and animation as a scriptwriter and then editor, producer and director. And as mentioned, his uh, book is UFO Science. It's his first book that delves into into this uh, kind of subject material. I'd like to welcome you to the program. How's that? Good to have you here. So uh, tell us how you got into a write about this subject, because this wasn't wasn't your background. This is not how you started out uh, writing. Oh, yeah. Um, So first off. Thank you so much for inviting me over. It's, it's wonderful to be chatting on the subject. It's such a fascinating topic. Uh, yeah. Um, so during my period, way, way back in the late 90s when I was attending college, uh, I got my degree in graphic design and communication. But all along the way, I was taking elective classes in physics 
with the expectation that, well, you know, I'm not so great at math, but I'm just, I, I've always been a science nerd. And I didn't feel there was much money to be made in being a physicist. So instead, I went into television production, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I always had that fascination with physics. I, I love quantum mechanics and, you know, uh, Newton, Newton's principles. And over the years, I studied different topics. And there was a book I read on the subject of uh UFOs slash UAP. And in this particular book, the author was presenting a very objective opinion of why we were probably the first in the universe. Therefore, that's why we don't see anything out there when we look into the universe. And I accepted that as rational, and I couldn't really argue against it. And so I kind of filed that away in the back of my mind. Then in 2017, there was a New York Times article that basically blew that right off my shelf and said, right. okay, wait a minute, um, there's definitely more here going on. And I opened up Pandora's box and I started delving in and talking with uh, different science figures over the course of the last year. I've come to understand that some of the things that we've been told are absolutely impossible really are not. So the kinds of things that I was describing moments ago, uh, we think they're impossible because we haven't seen, you know, uh, our uh, craft do it. But there are those that have these capabilities. Well, basically, we're familiar with uh, propulsion. We're familiar with, you know, you fire one thing out the back, an equal and opposite reaction. We aren't familiar with anything that can move like that without some form of, you know, uh, eruption of some type, be it gasoline or rocket fuel right. or even electric engines running, you know, trains on a track. So this technology, uh, from what I understand, is not that type of propulsion. I almost would say it's not a form of propulsion as much as it is altering the curvature of space-time. And that's where the physics comes in. And that's why it all seems so impossible. Because as far as we know, and you can talk to almost any physicist and they will tell you, there's only one way to curve space-time. And that's by cramming a whole lot of matter into a tight space. If you want to curve space-time in such a way as to be similar to the Earth, you need an Earth-sized planet to do that. But it turns out that there may very well be another way to do it instead that, you know, in our minds, it all sounds like, well, forget it. You, you can't summon the power of a star to do these kinds of things. That's ridiculous. And it's easy to accept that. But if you familiarize yourself with enough of these physicists, they've come to understand uh, physics on a level that we're just not familiar with. And so we have to almost change everything that we've come to understand so far in order to understand these concepts that you're going to present tonight. Right. So what I felt, I've, I've been studying this since 2017, and 
I've been examining different science figures, theories all along the way, and it can be very heady. You can understand when they get into quantum mechanics how mind-boggling the subject can become. But I felt what everyone is, what we as a society are kind of lacking is that layman's understanding of this science. And if people, everyday people could learn about this science, then all of this impossibility suddenly will seem quite plausible. So can you break it down to the layman's level here? (laughs) So um, basically um, what we're talking about is altering, we're, we're talking about craft that can create their own gravity. So when I say we're going to alter the curvature of space-time, what I'm actually saying is we're going to create gravity. Because gravity is essentially when the curvature of space-time or where... Let me back up a little bit, I guess. We all need to understand the the common principle of what space-time is. And for most lay people, space is three dimensions. You have height, depth, and you have width. And then if you want to throw in the fourth vital dimension, you also have the dimension of time. Hence why we call it space-time. Now, gravity is how a planet takes this linear grid this linear three-dimensional grid of interstellar space and compresses it down where wherever there's more mass, you have the curvature of this three-dimensional grid that funnels down towards a planet or a star. But what if we could create an engine that could do that on a local, smaller scale? Are you talking about something like the warp drive? Exactly. I mean, we are talking about warping. So we're warping reality around our craft by creating gravity in positions where it's practical and useful to our occupants. All right. Well, we'll have you go more into that when we can continue. Geo Turner with us, author of UFO Science Tonight. I'm Jeremy Scott. Somewhere between the paranormal and the abnormal, I'm Jeremy Scott. We're talking about warping space-time tonight with the author of UFO Science, Secret New Physics, Vehicles, and UAP. Gary uh, Gary Geo Turner is our guest tonight. His website, geoturnerwrites.com. Link to his uh, Amazon book as well up on our website. Uh, so, uh, warping space-time in order to create the gravity in which to power these craft. Is that an accurate assessment of where we've uh, gone so far, Gary? In a nutshell, that pretty much sums up uh, why they are able to do the things are, uh, that we declare aren't supposed to be possible, what uh, some people refer to as the five observables. And what are those for those who aren't familiar? So um, one of the most obvious ones is their ability to move at speeds 
more rapid than the speed of sound and yet never form a sonic boom. Uh, there's been instances of radar data and other uh, uh, experiences where we're talking about vehicles that are moving tens or even hundreds of thousands of miles an hour and never a single boom. They, it's almost always silent. And then also uh, another observable is the ability to maneuver without any form of flight surfaces. So no wings, no rudders, because the air is actually not even an obstacle for a vehicle like this. And so, yeah, that would indicate that if it it, it would normally need those uh, if it flied with the conventional methods. Well, also because of that, uh, when when the medium it's passing through isn't really relevant to its ability to maneuver, it doesn't matter if it's space air or water, these vehicles can alter the curvature of space-time around it so it's constantly in its own little pocket subspace. Okay, so uh, people have known to uh, seen these craft moving at speeds faster than the speed of sound without creating a sonic boom, maneuver without rings or uh, or rudders, and what else? They can also Wings. turn on a dime. They can make a 90-degree angle right. turn or greater even than that, and anyone else, inertia would squish you against the inside of your vehicle, they can suddenly accelerate to hypersonic speed or go from hypersonic speed to a sudden stop. And as anyone knows in a car collision, you get thrown in your seat. Well, if you're moving thousands of miles an hour and you suddenly come to an abrupt stop, you would be jelly. But inside these vehicles, in your own little pocket subspace, you're experiencing only the gravity that you control. So it could be zero gravity or it could just be like like you're not moving at all. Right. And these are things that uh, witnesses, uh, multiple witnesses, have said exactly what these craft have done. Uh, been able to uh, basically slow and stop uh, to almost uh, appear as if they're not moving, accelerate, bypass them, uh, go from uh, very high in the altitude to very low in the altitude, uh, turn on a dime, all of this. And this type of gravity drive would be capable of all of those kinds of observations not only because you're within your own subspace uh, within your craft, but also when you curve space-time, you're also altering the passage of time relative inside versus out. The question is, is something like this already in um, basically the design phase or beyond? We're crafting a theory tonight with our guest, Geo Turner, author of UFO Science. I'm Jeremy Scott. More Into the Paranormal coming up. This is Paranormal News. 
The Foo Fighters mesmerized the nation during World War II in the 1940s, and the mystery of their origins still remains. Air Force pilots reported balls of fire coming too close for comfort towards their aircraft at high speeds. Scientists at the University of California, University of Arizona, and Harvard-Smithsonian now believe they figured out what was responsible for at least some of the sightings. Based on video, photographic, and computer analysis, along with Reports by military officers and astronauts, the team makes their case that it was plasmas in the thermosphere. They say this can be responsible for, quote, numerous shapes travel in different directions with some moving quickly while others hover in space. They even appear to target or follow each other and sometimes collide, leaving what resembles a plasma dust trail in their wake. George Henry, Paranormal News. There were 143 sightings that could not be explained using the normal laws of physics. Some of these phenomena, we know, have already had uh, an impact on our training ranges. There's a whole fleet of them. Look on the ASA. My gosh. They're all going against the wind. The wind's 120 knots to the west. You know, when pilots are out trying to do training in the air and they see these things, they're not sure what they are. It defies all of our laws of physics. How it works, that's what we need to find out. What we're observing are objects that can go what they call transmedia, from space to air to sea, without any inertial effect. You're traveling at the speed of light into the paranormal. Something like a warp drive, is that what we're talking about? It's what we're talking about tonight with uh, Geo Turner, at least at this point in time, author of UFO Science, Secret New Physics, Vehicles, and UAP. So, Geo, is there uh, some current development of such a, uh, 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 a uh, product right now? There is reason to believe uh, that our own uh, military contractors, uh, specifically one that has been named most recently Lockheed Martin, may have developed a man-made version of what we would consider to be uh, non-human intelligence craft that they have back-engineered successfully enough over the course of the last 80 years sufficiently to have prototypes that do alter this curvature of space-time using extraordinary methods. Um, Lockheed Martin is uh, uh, has a history of other patents as well, don't they? Um, I'm not exactly uh, familiar with all of their patents. Um, I know the Skunk Works is responsible for such uh, aircraft as the SR-71 Blackbird, as well as uh, the Nighthawk Stealth Fighter. But uh, it, th- so if they have back engineered uh, uh, a craft, or are you, do we know what kind of uh, object? Well, so what I did was for this book, I brought together a bunch of different kind of craft and separated those out into ind- their own individual chapters. 
so um, there is a chapter on uh, Mark McKenlish's flux liner craft. There is one on Salvatore Pius's uh, uh, nurse. Uh, and, sorry, Salvatore Pius's Navy patents, which is uh, a a Navy qualified patent on a inertial mass reduction vehicle. Um, there's also the TR-3B Astra has its own chapter. And then probably the most famous and the only uh, non-human craft in the book would be the sports model from Bob Lazar's accounts. So I put together physics surrounding each of these craft and how they likely work and boil it down so that any person could pick up the book and within a short chapter at least have a handle on the concepts. Okay, so with each different craft, uh, we're talking about a new theory. Well, that's part of the fascinating bit is because I was bringing all this research together from different sources, as I reached out to each science figure and uh, got their information, what I noticed was many of the man-made craft are all dovetailing into the same region of quantum mechanics. So each one working individually in their own little silo doesn't understand that the person that's on the other side of the continent is kind of playing in the same sandbox, but from different perspectives. All right. Um, and do you have a, a stance then on a percentage uh, of what might be extraterrestrial versus not extraterrestrial that gets reported as a typical UFO these days? Well, um, I couldn't really break it down to percentage. I couldn't tell you how many sightings are NHI versus man-made. But there is a very simple rule of thumb. If you're witnessing a vehicle in the sky that is exhibiting these five observables, and you see any kind of plates, rivets, nuts and bolts, then that's likely going to be human-made technology. Whereas if you see a craft that has no seams, looks like it is one solid piece, I mean, it, it can have windows and can have different you know aspects to it. But if it looks like it was molded as one solid object, then that's not human made. That's uh, assuming you can you can uh, get a close look, uh, but I, I feel what you're saying here. Uh, yeah, if you, if you can get out and kick the tires and walk around it, that's a quick and easy way to distinguish between the two. Absolutely. And so what are some other uh, examples that you can share with us? Well, throwing back uh, uh, in into even further, back in the 1950s, Many people aren't aware of this, but um, the, the U.S. Army contracted a Canadian uh, weapons manufacturer to build our own flying saucer, and that was called the Avro Canada VZ-9. So that's actually featured as one of the chapters within the book where the engineers and physicists working on that actually attempted to use high turbojet engines in a centralized uh, saucer shape with the aspect 
so back in the 50s, they were thinking nuclear war is going to mean that we need to have military bases with no runways because the threat of runways and nuclear weapons, well, they just needed vertical takeoff and landing vehicles. And so they crafted out this type of flying saucer and the Canadians never could quite get it to work. They spent several years, but they ran into all kinds of physics issues because the craft, as soon as it got more than five, 10 feet off the ground, it began to do what they call hub capping, where it would become unstable and start wobbling around all over the place. So eventually they had to give that up. But some, in some cases, you did find that the, there may be some extraterrestrial element in some of them? So the big hurdle that we currently have in our technology is what we call, um, uh, it, it's, I want to say subject matter, but that's not right, uh, uh, material science. That's what I'm trying to say. So our, our biggest hurdle we can't overcome is the material sciences. So back in 1989, when Bob Lazar first came out in uh, the KLAS uh, interview, he talked about the sports model craft as seeming to appear like the whole thing was crafted as one giant piece of wax heated and then cooled off so that there were no right angles, no seams. Everything seemed to meld into one solid piece. And at that time, we had never heard of the term metamaterial, not until about 10 years later. So in 1999, enough back engineering had been achieved that we figured out something that we today call metamaterials. And that has a great deal to do with power management and what it takes to curve space-time. And do you think that uh, research that Bob Lazar was involved in had to do with some of this? Well, he actually says he did not work on the uh, on the metamaterial. His focus was on the engine, which is highlighted greatly in this book, along with supportive uh, documentation by another physicist who examined some of the aspects that Bob couldn't understand, but Ricardo Stiordi could. Such as? So there was certain frequencies that the sports model seemed to emit gravity waves at, and he couldn't understand the reason for that. But Ricardo did, and there is a section within the book where they break down those numbers and have it actually make sense. So what, were there patterns in the numbers or ways to uh, find some sort of uh, data within there? It has to do with the size of the planet or star that you're close to and uh, how much, uh, what frequency to emit gravity waves to counteract the environment you're currently in. We kind of skated away from the from the metamaterials. The metamaterials, I think, are the most vital aspect of all of this and why we can't do what the NHI craft can do as easily. What do you mean by metamaterials? 
Ah, okay. So uh, a metamaterial is a uh, it is a material where. Uh, huh. Let me back up a little bit more again. If you were to take a steel rod and go backwards in time to the pharaohs and present it to his uh, people in the court, they would be amazed at how incredibly strong that steel was, but they wouldn't have the first understanding of how to craft that because all they've ever worked with is iron. So that's kind of where we are now. This metamaterial that the hull of these crafts are constructed from is basically... If you want to imagine a 3D printed uh, metal where it isn't just the strength of the, of the molecular structure, but also the lattice on how that structure is laid over itself. A metamaterial is able to alter certain frequencies that pass through the material. So... As of 1999, we now have a few different forms of metamaterial that can, uh, like, reverse uh, refraction so that when light passes through glass, the angle will actually switch and go the opposite direction. There are metamaterials that can cancel out sound, so things that pass through it are completely silent. Are you still with me? Yes, I am. I'm just mesmerized <laughs> trying to understand how this all goes together. I mean, this is some pretty deep stuff that you get into here. Right. But uh, I can honestly say we're kind of bouncing around right now in different aspects, trying to touch on all these different things. But in the book, I spell it out in a chapter-by-chapter basis so that you can build on each piece as you go through the book. Now, the the most important aspect of a metamaterial is when we come around to Jack Sarfati's chapter. Dr. Jack Sarfati is the actual physicist, theoretical physicist, that they based, that they uh, patterned a character on in Back to the Future. Dr. Emmett Brown is actually based off of Jack Sarfati. And the thing that Dr. Sarfati concluded is, uh, it's actually a very basic principle when it comes to Einstein's uh, theory of relativity and the curvature of space-time. And that is, uh, within his chapter, you'll see there is a particular equation that physicists can use to determine how much energy it takes or how much mass, because mass and energy are interchangeable, how much it takes to compress and alter the curvature of space-time. And you're going to have to tell us exactly how much energy it takes when we come back. Talking with Geo Turner tonight, we are, well, we're going deep into the topic tonight with him, crafting a theory, and we'll have more of our discussion right after this. Stick with us. Into the can get deep there in between the paranormal and the abnormal as we're doing tonight. Geo Turner is my guest, author of UFO Science, Secret New Physics Vehicles and UAP. All right, we were talking about uh, Dr. Jack 
uh, Dr. Jack Sarfati, and this equation to determine how much mass or energy uh, it would be needed to compress or alter the curvature of space-time. What did he find out? Right there in the equation is a very common principle called the speed of light, or the letter C in the equation. And it is the speed of light that actually determines how much mass or energy it takes to alter curvature space-time slash create gravity. Now, the interesting aspect that we're looking at when it comes to man-made vehicles versus NHI vehicles is our man-made crafts are trying to generate power supplies of an enormous fashion. I'm talking about some of these types of craft uh, mathematically on paper would need to generate similar power levels as that of a neutron star. So if you look at uh, Salvatore Pius's uh, mass inertial reduction vehicle, he's using a form of plasma within the hull of his craft in order to create this huge amount of uh, potential energy. Now, he comes up with a very clever fashion to do that that still makes it within the realm of the possible, but we're still talking about a huge amount of power in order to create the gravity his craft requires, or the lack of gravity thereof. Now, if you're using Dr. Sarfati's and Einstein's uh, equation, what Dr. Sarfati noticed is if you could slow down the speed of light, then the amount of power that is required to alter the curvature of space-time dramatically drops with that slowed speed of light. Right. And again, where would all this power uh, come from? So (laughs) it really depends if we're talking about an NHI craft versus a man-made craft. Uh, The man-made craft, it goes into great detail about all the different types of man-made craft and the whole engine structures for each craft is relative to its own chapter. And they all kind of focus on the same part of quantum mechanics uh, called quantum foam, where we get down to the Planck scale and we're generating virtual particles that become real particles, et cetera, et cetera. And, and that gets a little too heady, but it would, it's, it's covered more clearly in the book. But as for, like, the sports model vehicle, uh, I'm hypostulating, or I'm postulating that uh, the hull of the sport model is a metamaterial that actually slows the speed of light. And as such, it doesn't require, you know, what Dr. Safadi says is, right now we understand the speed of light as we come to know it is at about 300,000 mile or 300,000 kilometers a second but if we could slow the speed of light down to something ridiculous like say 3 centimeters a second then suddenly we only need the you know like a energizer bunny battery in order to operate some small craft that uh, that little power huh 
It all has to do with the speed of light. Now, of course, the craft actually generates uh, power, at least the sports model generates power through antimatter, antimatter-matter collisions, which does create a huge sum of power, but it's, it's very efficiently used by slowing the speed of light as it enters through the craft. All right, we'll have to continue our conversation into the next hour, and we will. My guest is Geo Turner. His website, geoturnerwrites.com, W-R-I-T-E-S. And uh, that's linked up, by the way, at parabnormalradio.com. If you are driving and you can't uh, get there or working, whatever the case happens to be, and hello to all you truckers out there and those of you working on the uh, assembly line tonight. Appreciate all of you listening. We'll have more of our program somewhere between the paranormal and abnormal right after this. I'm Jeremy Scott. venture too far you might not make it back into the pair of normal defy the laws of physics is that actually the case uh, Odra's physics need to be rewritten talking with Geo Turner tonight author of UFO science secret new physics vehicles and UAP we got started we rushed in we covered a lot of ground in the first hour so now we're going to kind of step back and reset as a brand new audience seemingly joins us here in this hour and uh, Geo, so some are going to be hearing you speak for the first time here. Others are still with us, of course. Uh, give us a, a Reader's Digest version. I know that's hard to do, but uh, of the premise that you discuss in UFO science. So, yeah, I know we threw a lot of heady things at everyone, and, and I encountered that as well as I started doing my research. That's why I put this book together so that you could actually digest it and be able to hold it in your hand a page at a time and just come to understanding as you leaf through it. There's a lot of illustrations and graphics to back up and help to understand everything within the book. So basically, we are, my, my book chronicles, I want to say five to six different types of craft, all built on a similar principle of creating gravity for your own craft. So um, what we learned along the way is uh, you either have to generate star-level powers of energy in order to warp space-time, or you need to craft a metamaterial on an atomic scale that would slow the speed of light and thus require a lot less power to 
achieve the same results. Unfortunately, our material sciences in the United States isn't able to print materials on an atom-by-atom basis. So, uh, but currently, uh, it is understood that some of our own military contractors have been able to successfully backwards engineer some of these NHI vehicles and have achieved some, I want to say rather, some of them are have a clunky result because you'll notice that several man-made vehicles have a lot of bolts, rivets, uh, different kind of fasteners that kind of keep it all together within a framework. Or if while, you're uh, on some Boeing jets, uh, they just they forgot about those. Oh, yeah, yeah. Those are optional on, on your uh, Max 737s. <laughs> <laughs> I got us completely off track now. <laughs> but, well, I was just traveling recently, and I was actually selecting planes based on on the aircraft model. Right. So that kind of tells you how much I really enjoy the science of it. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. But uh, you talk about how these uh, these five or six different craft differentiate from each other. Yeah. So um, some people might be familiar with the name Mark McCandlish. He was a uh, aeronautical illustrator that had his own experience. Uh, digging into the history of uh, these back-engineered vehicles. Uh, So, and over the course of several decades, he compiled his own information on a craft called the Fluxliner. Now, in my book, the Fluxliner is about as clunky a vehicle as you could come across. You could picture this kind of flying saucer looks more like a, um, a Jules Verne, diving bell instead of some sleek sports craft and it's it's equipped with like closed circuit caption cameras on the outside and there are um, like ejection seat jet fighter craft seats inside it's really a, a throwback type of craft and according to Mr. McCandlish's research, it was successful, and they created three different versions of the craft, and it was in use for decades as of the 1980s. Now, since then, other models have been developed that are less clunky, from what I understand, but the security surrounding that technology seems to be just a bit too tight for Uh, a lot of the physics that I prefer researching. I'm not so much about, uh, let me back up a little bit. The thing that we encounter in researching all these different UAP uh, subject is the disinformation that is easily applied to different people. So when you take a person like Bob Lazar, or Mark McCandlish, or Salvatore Paez even, it's actually very easy to find ways to make that person disreputable so that most viewers will automatically discount them. And the result of doing that is that people are no longer looking at the science. They stop looking at the data. So I would say to all of your listeners, ignore all 
the uh, attempts to discredit a person. Ignore the person. Instead, look at the science that is put forward and see if that makes sense instead. Yeah. So how much of what you discuss is is speculation versus uh, classified research that that may be being done on this or or documentation that you've been able to uncover? So I can't actually declare one thing is true or one thing isn't. What I did do, though, was I brought together all these disparate uh, accounts and I looked at the science. I looked at the data. I spoke with different physicists and we compared the information and we broke down the parts that were plausible and why they would be that way. There have been a few occasions where I, the data I received definitely had some, um, I, I had some difficulty with uh, accepting the plausibility of it. For instance, uh, there's the TR-3B craft, and uh, the information I got on that dealt a great deal with plasma and hyper-cooled uh, sub-zero temperatures. So I had difficulty with that particular theory, and I, and I state that within the book about its plausibility. So is any of this uh, technology uh, possible that uh, it could cloak an object? Oh, yes, definitely. If you can alter the curvature of space-time around your craft, then you can um, – well, let's talk about one of the ways that Einstein's theory of relativity was shown to be proof positive was when they made a solar observation of a star – that was actually on the other side of our own sun. Because space-time is curved around the mass of such a huge object as our sun, the star, our Sol, when this particular star should have been behind our sun and invisible to us, because Einstein's theory were proven correct, it was actually still visible off to the left-hand side of our own star. Because the light that came from that other star had to move around curved space-time to be able to enter our telescopes. You also uh, look at uh, the possibilities that um, some of these uh, craft are able to maneuver between different mediums we're talking about air and water and space it's a term that has become to be known as transmedium right so if you can generate your own gravity you could manufacture your own little pocket space time around yourself and therefore it doesn't matter if you're underwater because there's not going to be any friction you're going to be able to just um, it might help to visualize something. Imagine you could, uh, let's say we're out in space and we want to go a huge distance really quickly, but we still can't violate the speed of light. That is still one of Einstein's absolute rules. You Physical objects cannot go faster than the speed of light. But if you can take the actual space 
between you and another point in the universe and compress the distance between, you can cross over that distance without violating the speed of light. Imagine you had an engine that could create a virtual black hole in front of your craft. And let's say that virtual black hole is, let's say, 100 feet in front of your craft. You're going to be sucked towards that at such an incredible rate. But as long as that black hole is 100 feet in front of you, regardless of how far you travel, you're never going to actually fall into the black hole. You're just going to get sucked forward at an incredible, phenomenal speed throughout the universe. And then when you get to the point that you wish to be, you turn your engine off, boom, you snap back into reality, you're there. Not only black holes, but wormholes play a role, don't they, as well? Well, essentially, in such a case, a wormhole, black hole, it's all warped curvature of space-time. It is a warp drive, similar to Star Trek. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay, so is there classified research currently being done? I mean, because it's classified, uh, we may not know about it, but there could be some documents or that have been released uh, that may just have, you know, a lot of black ink on them. Oh, undoubtedly, I'm sure. Uh, uh, maybe your listeners are familiar with the uh, Martin Davis documents that came out uh, a few years back where it was disclosed that there is this back engineering program going on, but it doesn't matter if you are a part of uh, the president's uh, military council, you're still not given access to it. Uh, So, and of course, also recently in the congressional hearings, it has been mentioned that over 40 different whistleblowers are waiting in the wings this year many with firsthand knowledge of the legacy engineering program. And is, who, who operates it, uh, who operated that program or is it still operating? Well, there's so many fascinating aspects about it. Uh, with the Schumer amendment threat that was on the verge last year, I understand Lockheed Martin was trying to divest themselves of their uh, inventory so as to avoid some legal complications. But since uh, Mike Turner and other uh, uh, senators were able to defang the legislation, uh, the more consequential aspects of it are they're no able longer to, uh, Yeah, they're able to hold on to it. They don't have to turn it over, at least not yet. It's that whole uh, eminent domain thing we've talked about. More to come with Geo Turner. Into the paranormal. Into the Paranormal, I'm Jeremy Scott. Geo Turner, our guest tonight, is somebody uh, wrote in saying that uh, Lockheed Martin has a crash recovery team. Haven't been able to chance, uh, had a chance yet to Google that to see if it's uh, true or not or what I can find about that. But uh, point being, we're hearing Lockheed Martin often when talking about this technology, not just tonight, but on many other shows so it sounds like uh, what you're saying, uh, Gary, is that they had some uh, of this technology and would have had to hand it over if this UAP disclosure bill was passed as it was written, the whole eminent domain clause. 
correct, as well as their funding would have been suspended had they not disclosed possession of it. That was just round one, honestly. I don't want anyone to get discouraged. Uh, yeah, we everyone had their hopes up, and in the 11th hour, right when votes were about to be cast is when they gutted it. But this was round one, and I think there's enough fervor now and enough people are taking the subject seriously. Let's see what happens the next time the bill comes up around again. Well, you mentioned funding, and I guess we can only imagine where uh, Lockheed Martin would get uh, the funding to do some of this research, back engineering and whatnot, if that's what it is. Of course, yes. Uh, We've known for decades that the uh, Department of Defense's budget has been notoriously uh, unable to account for where a huge sum of funding goes. So you can imagine easily. <laughs> yeah, not only the, the parts, the technology, but also the personnel and the facilities needed in which to do this. So it can't just be Lockheed Martin. There's got to be other facilities where this takes place, right? Well, Lockheed Martin just became the most uh, famous because it's one of the biggest and was recently outed. But from my understanding is they are not the only military contractor. Part of the issue with disclosure that is going to be problematic is some military industrial uh, manufacturers had access and some did not. Now, if you are a, a, a company that is supposed to have a fair access from your government and people are playing favorites, you're opening yourself up to uh, some definite lawsuits. And not only that, but uh, Lockheed Martin is a publicly traded company. And there are stock laws that says that you have to be fully upfront with your investors as to uh, what kind of assets you have on your books. So once again, if this was disclosed, the shareholders could actually sue Lockheed Martin. But we've heard about some of these uh, facilities, at least uh, uh, ones that are known to or rumored to exist, such as uh, S4, other underground properties, perhaps even Wright-Patterson, where some of this technology has been worked on. Yeah, there, there's a few different uh, bases around. Uh, a few of them are known. Uh, if you... There's several different figures in the UFO topic, uh, one of which is uh, a controversial man by the name of Dr. Stephen Greer, who put forth a recent map of many different locations around the world where he feels these uh, black sites are. Now, I haven't gone in and researched any of that. Again, my, my focus has been on the physics and science and the data. Yeah, and I just from my recollection, I know Dugway Proving Ground was one that was mentioned there. This was brought up by Stephen Greer in the disclosure project that happened, I believe it was last June 26th, if the date is right. Around then is when this event was held at the National Press Club in Washington, D.C., where this map that Geo Turner talks about was brought to light. More to come. I'm Jeremy Scott, crafting a theory on Into the Pair of Normal.
Paranormal News. A massive group of sunspots larger than Earth is facing right at Earth and threatening to bombard us with the strong solar flares. It's more than 124,000 miles across. At least one is so big that it could be seen by NASA's Perseverance rover from the surface of Mars and is also visible from Earth. The National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration predicts it could send the most powerful type of solar flares at us and trigger a coronal mass ejection. Sunspots are becoming more frequent as we approach solar maximum of the current solar cycle as magnetic energy is released in the atmosphere with an intense burst of electromagnetic radiation. George Henry, Paranormal News. My name's Bob Lazar. I'm known for working at a classified base and reverse engineered alien spacecraft. The scientific community has never done any serious, sustained, systematic study of UFO phenomena. And that's in spite of the fact that if it were found that some UFOs were ETs or extraterrestrials, it would be one of the most important events in human history. To study UAP from a scientific perspective. Something called the holographic principle. It derives itself from general relativity and uh, quantum mechanics. And that is, if you want to imagine 3D objects such as yourself casting a shadow onto a 2D surface. How do they get their ship from their home world to Earth? Is there intelligent life out there? Well, they'd probably be listening to this show. You're in good company. Into the Fair of Normal. What say you? 503-506-0396 in the United States and Canada. That's 503-506-0396 internationally or from anywhere. Skype at ITP51. There's an open line waiting for you. What do you have to say about all this? Uh, We're crafting a theory tonight. It's fascinating to do so. Our guest is Geo Turner, and our conversation with him continues. You heard Bob Lazar there, and Bob Lazar claims to have worked at S4, a secret underground facility out near Area 51. And perhaps his claims, Geo, among the most controversial of any of the figures we've discussed tonight. Well, definitely. Um, he's also the most easily discreditable person. So, uh, but he is very fascinating. And once again, I would say disregard, you know, Bob's a nice guy and I would love to have drinks with him at a bar sometime, but set him aside and instead look at the theories and the evidence he puts forward to decide if what is there is believable or not. Uh, personally, uh, what do you what do you have to say? Uh, is it believable that Bob Lazar was part of uh, a group of individuals who were flown by Janet Airlines out to Area 51, bust, uh, you know, and, and down into a uh, a secret underground facility uh, where there was this technology that they helped back engineer? I believe that there is enough there to uh, find his account to be quite acceptable. Um, is it ironproof? No. There there was some aspects along the way that I questioned. But in the end, the, the, the science that he put forward was quite plausible. Um, for instance, uh, one of the 
the main aspects, the, the driving fuel for his uh, sports model, Alien Craft, was a substance called Element 115. Now, this was a fascinating uh, subject to delve into with Ricardo Stiordi. Um, we examined the machining process in the book, uh, why uh, this element is crafted the way it is and, and utilized to drive the engine of the craft. So for your listeners, element 115 on our periodic table did not exist in 1989. It was actually achieved in a Moscow uh, particle collider many decades later. And then only a few simple atoms existed for a fraction of a second. Now, your debunkers would say, well, element 115 can't be real because this particle collider could only make something that lasted for a fraction of a second. So therefore, there you go. This is not real science. But we could quickly dispute that information, that, that debunking claim, if you uh, examine the element gold, for example. So if you wanted to manufacture gold in a particle collider, you could jam a bunch of different uh, nuclei together and eventually come up with a few atoms of gold. The problem then is within a fraction of a second, your gold is going to break apart into other smaller elements because there are 41 different isotopes of gold. All but one of them is radioactive and will break apart almost immediately. Only one isotope of gold is the stable one that we now use in our rings and is not radioactive. So um, this particular element, 115, is high up on the periodic table. And from my understanding, you're not going to encounter element 115 natively within our solar system. So it's been put forward that element 115 might actually be native to other solar systems that have had uh, more dramatic star life cycles then our section of the Milky Way galaxy is actually pretty stable with very standard boring stars in our neighborhood. But if you can imagine back in our, in our galactic past, some of the stars that have been born live out their whole existence and then explode into humongous supernova. They can generate elements higher up on the on the chart than what would happen in our more quiet reserved section of the galaxy so you can imagine a society that grew up in a different part of the galaxy might actually have element 115 native to their own world and then came here by some sort of uh method uh whether on a spacecraft or whatnot so, yeah, um, the way Bob Lazar understands it, this element 115 was provided to our military in little disc shapes that were a particular size. And he didn't understand the whole process 
So they would take uh, like 16 of these little discs and they would take them to the Los Alamos lab and forge them together into a cylinder, which would then be machined down into a cone and then sliced up into triangular ingots. Why? What was the purpose of all that? Is there a reason for it? Bob didn't know. But talking with Ricardo Stiorti, we began to understand through him and his research and understanding the wavelengths that element 115 uh, functions within, there's an actual real reason why those ingots are provided in the scale that they are. Because at certain cuts and slices, the gravity A wave is actually canceled out on its surface, but would provide a way for a cascading effect to uh, propagate down through into the point of those triangular ingots. And so his his skills were needed, but he was still kept in the dark on certain things. Right. So because so many fascinating aspects about all of this. So um, the UFO back engineering research program piggyback in on the, um, the Manhattan Project. So all the same types of security measures that were used in the Manhattan Project were copied and pasted into the UFO back engineering program. Scientists were required to work in pairs and were not permitted to speak to each other about any subject other than what any subject, period. They're just only told to talk within pairs. And there's big limitations with that. And Bob would would jump up on his soapbox and say that if you're not permitted to talk science with other scientists, then you're going to really limit how, how far things can go because one scientist or even two scientists only know so much. And it's when you talk with other physicists that those parts that you don't understand come into understanding. And that's where... Ricardo Stiorti's research really paid off because Bob didn't understand why these ingots were cut the way they were, but Ricardo could. So any idea if it's black ops behind these uh, efforts or operations such as what uh, Bob was involved in? Well, yeah, of course, all of Area 51 and S4 are considered black operations. Um And it was recently discussed there's a program within the Department of Defense or not exactly, it might not be in the Department of, no, actually, I'm correcting myself. It's in the Department of Energy. There's a program called Global Access. And their whole duty is to go around the world and recover any kind of technology that would be useful to us. Now, it might be a crash Chinese Satellite, it could be a Russian MiG fighter, or it could be an NHI craft. But global access duty is to recover it regardless of what country it's in. So is it possible that it is a foreign adversary? Well, um, if you ask George Knapp, the uh, journalist out of Las Vegas, he will tell you that many of the other countries, or at least the superpowers, have their own research programs. The Russians have recovered their own NHI craft and have been able to successfully back-engineer some uh, uh, some types of energy weapons. 
And um, the Chinese government openly declares that they have their own um, uh, back engineering uh, UAP research scientists. But I haven't learned very much about their progress. Yeah, absolutely. Top secret stuff here. So why do you think that science in general hasn't uh, taken the subject as seriously and done a true investigation? I mean, there have been studies over the years. None of them have turned out quite positive. Well, the whole stigma that was engendered back in the 1940s has been wildly successful for so many different reasons. And one of them, uh, one of the reasons it's so successful is because of something we call ontological shock. People have a comfort zone in how they view the world today. They pay their bills, they go to work, they take care of their families, and there's a comfort in knowing we're a top of the the we're a top of the pyramid. Uh, civilization in our world, we don't have anything to fear from anything below us. But the idea that something might be so far beyond us that we're completely vulnerable to, honestly, many people don't want to hear that. And so when offered a chance to ridicule and dismiss the subject, it's far easier for most people to just dismiss, make fun of it, and go back to their regular comfortable existence. And it's certainly the, the NASA study that we saw here, I don't know how familiar you were with that, but it lasts uh, basically less than a year, and uh, they had pretty much issued their findings uh, just over the halfway point and then stalled it another couple months and basically uh, told us that there's there's no evidence whatsoever. Right. And the same thing with the arrow and uh, the guy that just stepped down from there. Oh, Dr. Kirkpatrick. Yeah. Yeah, learning more so, and more about him every day as far as uh, things that he said that seemingly contradicted uh, himself and uh, and the agency. Right. I mean, it's almost becoming more of a joke the more they try to deny something. It's like, excuse me? you. You just showed us uh, stuff in your own presentation of this Mosul orb, but hey, nothing to see here. It's all nothing. Just go back to your comfortable lives. Right. We've here's, got this covered. Right. Here's something that we can't explain. This was uh, this certain incident, uh, but meanwhile, we're not going to show you the stuff in which we can't explain because that would uh, show that we're vulnerable, vulnerable to the enemy. Uh, just to have a couple of moments here before we hit the break, I don't want to run out of time tonight. Gio, what's the best way for folks to uh, contact you? Uh, they can find me on my website, geoturnerwrites.com. Uh, that's where I have a lot of my own uh, fantasy adventure novels, but there's also a link there to my UFO science book. This is the first UFO science book in a series, and I'm currently working on book two already on the subject of crop circles for right. those that are interested. Hold that thought. Maybe we'll get a preview of that when we come back. Geo Turner, my guest. I'm Jeremy Scott. Into the paranormal. paranormal.
Jeremy Scott, it's been awesome talking with Geo Turner tonight, author of the book UFO Science. And since we're talking about UFO science, uh, David Grush, the whistleblower, uh, during the hearing that happened back in July of last year, actually discussed the holographic principle. What are your thoughts on the feasibility of that? Wow, that's that's definitely a subject that goes deep into the quantum mechanics. Um, my research doesn't so much cover that subject because this particular book was focused on the nuts and what we call the nuts and bolts, actual physical craft. Uh, I do have a few chapters that kind of touch on the other types of UAPs, like there are physical orbs as well as plasma orbs that are discussed in a chapter. But you mentioned crop circles, because is there a connection to this as well? Uh, I know crop circles, many have said that that is is an energetic occurrence. And certainly it sounds like there could be a connection to what we're discussing tonight with the gravitics of it. So, yeah, I I want to say that I enter into my research uh, with um, I try to be as as unbiased as I can and just take the facts as they are. Um, But honestly, as I approached my book on crop circles, I had a fascinating kind of preconceived notion that, to me, it doesn't make sense. There are literally thousands of these crop circles that have come up over the decades around the world. And I could understand people can certainly hoax them. But what motivation would you have to make so many of these crop circles uh, other than someone actually paying you to create them. But my research is showing me some fascinating uh, details that are altering my understanding of the subject, and I really look forward to sharing that when I release the book later this year. You mentioned plasmas and orbs just a moment ago, and it brought back... uh a memory from earlier in the program when George Henry talked about uh, plasmas being used as a potential explanation for the Foo Fighters, which was a series of UFO sightings that happened in World War II. Any thoughts on that, Gio? Um, there's different uh, different aspects. There's different weather phenomena that can definitely be called into account. Um I understand uh, uh, with nuclear threats around the world, we set up many satellites around the planet to monitor gamma rays as they appear throughout the Earth. So that way it would detect, you know, uh, detonation of nuclear weapons. But the surprising aspect of it was as soon as we got that array of satellites around scanning, we started noticing gamma ray emissions on a daily basis. And, of course, some of those were nukes, but most of them weren't. And it turned out, after steady research, they determined they were centralized around thunderstorms. So it appeared that some of these high-altitude thunderstorms and their lightning strikes actually build up a huge ionic charge in the upper stratosphere that is then released as gamma rays. So there is definitely high-altitude weather phenomena that we are still learning to this day. So the possibility, or I would even say probability, that some 
plasma that we see in the atmosphere is weather-related. But then again, if, let's say, 90% of crop circles are man-made, okay, well, let's disregard that 90% because I'm really interested in that other 10%. Right, as am I. Geo, that's all the time we have tonight. Again, your name of the book and the website and where they can follow you, how do they do that? Um, my website is geoturnerwrites.com. If you want to pop onto Amazon, you can search up UFO science and it should come right up. But you can also find my paperback on other book-related websites, Barnes & Noble, Apple, Google, etc. Appreciate you coming on tonight. Oh, I've had a great time. Thanks so much. Me as well. Always uh, good to talk about those uh, subjects. So There's certainly one of them between the paranormal and the abnormal. Something that can... Um, Operate uh, it, it, with numerous shapes, travel in different directions, move quickly, hover in place, appear to target or follow each other, and sometimes collide, leaving behind what resembles a, a plasma dust trail in their wake. Is that what was responsible for the Foo Fighters back in the 40s? Is that what is responsible for what's going on in our skies present day? From the cold, dark depths of a secret dungeon... Somewhere deep in the remote Pacific Northwest, I'm Jeremy Scott. Good night, and God bless. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.